0: People are so obsessed over the tactics, like the subject lines, the cold call openers, these details. people, they're smart, they're working hard, smart people, they could figure it out. I think if we talked half as much as we did about the tactics with the framework of the stuff we're talking about, how you should approach this, you would need the direction of the tactics and the specifics. You would just approach it like that and it'd be much more human.
1: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Ross Rich. Ross is the founder and CEO of Accord. In our conversation today, we go deep into the whole topic of buyer-first sales. Now, we start the conversation defining what is buyer-first sales, and then Ross and I dig into why buyer-first sales is really antithetical to the methods that many tech and SaaS sellers are using today. We talk about how the buying process is becoming increasingly complex, we all know that, and how buyers have more options and more red tape than ever before, which is why sellers who don't actually partner with buyers and guide them through the buying journey will lose deals to competitors that do. So we get into this with Ross and much, much more. But before we get to Ross, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. If you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing by leaving us a review, we'd really appreciate it. So, thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Ross, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. Excited for it. It's excited to talk to you as well. So, you're joining us from Toronto, you said?
0: Yeah, Toronto, Ontario. Um, finishing up a nice sunny summer and uh, fingers crossed for an easy winter here, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's the joke about Toronto, isn't it? September 1st, the winter started already?
0: I <laughs> you never know. Depends on the year.
1: <laughs> yeah, my uh, uh, older brother lived in North Dakota at one point, And he said the locals described the weather as uh, 10 months of winter and two months of bad skating. So... <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah, well, you can give it to Ryan. He can add it to his bad joke list. Um, so... Tell us a little bit about Accord and what you guys are doing. Yeah,
0: so Accord is a customer-facing collaboration platform for B2B sales, onboarding, and success. Um, if I had to summarize in a sentence, it's uh, making the process of buying and selling technology suck a lot less for both uh, for both sides of the equation.
1: I love the description. That's good. So you <laughs> you said that you're on your materials and so on that you're, and I like this this by the way, is, is you say you're buyer first sales expert. So, uh, tell people exactly what you mean by that.
0: Yeah, so from my experience um, being in sales, so really briefly a bit about my background. Before founding Accord a couple years ago, um, I was one of the first business hires, sales hires at uh, Stripe in 2015, And through that experience, really fell in love with um, with sales, especially around building processes and consistency and repeatability as you scale a sales team, um, as well as being a frontline rep um, for a lot of the time. And um, yeah, found the most effective way of of selling more and building the right selling motions was actually really thinking deeply about the buyer, right? Because mm-hmm. they're the ones that hold the bag. They're the ones that are driving, you know, really at the end of the day, driving the decision. Right. And the easier it is to make their decision feel like a low risk, you know, exciting one, and you're the right partner for them. And they're going to trust and build a great partnership with, you know, that's kind of the lens that I use um, for helping others do that. So that's kind of why we we started Accord and take the, uh, the frame of mind of less so the manager or the rep or, you know, the company as a whole, it's really about the buyer. So that's kind of our approach.
1: Yeah, and you you talk you make reference to it as watching a webinar you and your brother did. You talk about sitting on the same side of the table yeah. as as the. Have you read Ian Altman's book, Same Side Selling? I have not, but it sounds like very aligned to the philosophy that yeah. you have here. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah you, should, you should check it out. Ian actually, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, he's been on the show a couple times. Amazing. Uh, if people people to check it out, get a summary of episode three hundred one and episode seven hundred thirty eight. Um, yeah, Smart Guy talks about that. So yeah, I mean I really like that approach. I mean, for me, and I wrote about this in one of my books, is that the perspective you need to have as a seller is sales is not something you do to people. <laughs> it's something you do with people. So true. Yeah. And and so you and I think it's just like a lot of things, and we'll touch on some others as we go on. It's just these little simple mindset changes and perspectives. Uh, can be pretty transformative for for sellers if they really take them to heart. Uh,
0: I uh, it sounds like yeah you're preaching to the choir. Um, well, I know. You, um, yeah, no, it's yeah. it, it, it's so great to hear to hear someone else sharing it with the world because I think it, especially with junior folks who haven't quite figured it out through experience, you know, you see them like pitching so hard, like you were saying, mm. selling at someone. First, right. just trying to solve the problem—it's so much more fun too, right? Like when you're there, just sure. like, hey, this is the solution that we have, and so and this is who it works with. If you're not there, and there's something I can help you with, like let's explore that. But this is really our thing, and spending like you know less time trying to make things really happen that aren't a fit, and more time with the right folks solving the right problems—like it's just more fun as well. So,
1: yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I early in my career, um, was working for this one startup where got hired. The company had sort of been in the defense space, and they wanted to start a commercial branch or a commercial arm of the company. Yeah. And they had sort of a basket full of technologies, uh, but no products. And you know, CEO's directive to me was, well, you can sell whatever you want. It's just the customer only stipulation is the customer has to pay for all of our research and development to build the product mm-hmm. and pay us to you know, make a certain quantity. So you had this like I couldn't pitch, right? What could I pitch? I wasn't pitching anything. You know, I had to go out and talk to people and just see what they what, was, what the problems were, what the challenges they were having, how we might possibly help you know, identify. And it was the absolute most fun yeah, that you amazing. could have in selling. That sounds
0: like a fantastic first sales experience, right? Because you go into the next company and, yeah, it's all about learning about them versus just, yeah, talking about features and
1: functionality. Right, and I and I I label that selling without persuasion, because what was I persuading somebody? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. I'm of the school that I think persuasion is not a sales skill; it's the opposite of a sales skill. But um, is yeah, when you don't have a product and you're selling, ultimately a vision, you have to be on the same side. You have to become, as you talk about, is yeah, a trusted advisor Mm -hmm. to to a customer. Completely. But isn't so? The but to that, though, is is that isn't this approach that you're talking about sort of antithetical to the way that so much of the way that SaaS products in particular are sold? I mean, for every SaaS company that's hired an AE into a role labeled as a closer, isn't by definition they're not sitting on the same side of the table yeah, as the buyer? exactly.
0: And I think that's where the world is today. And I think you well, not all SaaS companies. There is now no. this trend, I think, that's catching up with, you know, kind of talk about some like market trends that are leading to the need for not just like, oh, we're talking about a better way of selling and more enjoyable and just better for the world. Like the need to have that now is just buyer expectations have just dramatically shifted in the last few years. Um, you know, if kind of like, hey, if I, I can- yeah, so some people are like, hey, if I could buy this Tesla or this car and whatever, shop online for a 50K purchase, why can't you do the same thing for a 5, 10, 20, 50k, you know, B2B purchase? And I think mm-hmm. their expectations from getting things, you know, immediately having that transparency um, and on-demand vibe from a B2C, you know, world, that's bleeding into B2B in addition to the fact that you're seeing this massive trend, probably talk a lot about this is like product like growth. You're seeing people be able to try things now and explore it and have a much more transparent buying experience for some of those tools that's forcing Mm -hmm. everyone else to adopt that more transparent, collaborative um, buyer centric uh, approach to sales. So I'm not saying that this is the world today saying you're, you're you're seeing these signals and really forcing functions to have people make these changes. So um, yeah definitely a lot of dynamics pointing folks in in that direction
1: but it puts a, a certain amount of pressure on on sellers to and the companies that enable them or mm-hmm. enable them even in a bad way right because enable can be can be bad and good um, is to understand that the shift is underway and really change the way that they Change their own culture, yep, right, and the way that the way that the so the company's perspective on what sales is totally.
0: And I think I think um, I think it's actually for the better overall. I think it really is like a win win for both the buyer and the seller. A great example of this, and something that I experienced as a buyer recently, and made sure that we made this mm-hmm. change at Accord was I was purchasing a new piece of software, and I worked right. at the meeting time like. Thirty minutes later, an hour later, on their embedded HubSpot link on their site, when I requested mm-hmm. a demo, instead of waiting, even that thirty minutes, and then I have to go back and forth. I don't see the guy's calendar. It's like who knows what I'm doing and changing. You know where my mindset is. I think that's a great example of like that wasn't the best practice even a couple of years ago, and it's still not what everyone's doing. But that's a perfect example of thinking through the process, the buying journey from the customer's perspective versus the sales perspective. And it's better for both as the inbound SDR AE, you don't need to create the meeting. They booked it right away. It's top of mind for them. It's a better conversation that you're about to have. And I think there's that little tactical example times a hundred that really changes the process for both the buyer and seller to having just a better conversation. And those are the things that I'm really excited about and and that we're hopefully facilitating in the, uh, in the B2B space.
1: Yeah, well, I think the the imperative for sellers going forward, and this is, I think, is is been the big challenge, and you certainly see this reflected in some of the the research that we see, which I think draws the wrong conclusions uh, about you know sellers don't want to deal with buyers, or buyers don't want to deal with sellers yeah. anymore. Uh, we know sellers don't want to deal with buyers. Um, <laughs> that's part of the problem too, but but I think. I think they misunderstand when people are doing that research, and even though they come from, you know, well-known groups. Yeah. I think that the misunderstand, misinterpreting, is that it's first of all, buyers have never wanted to talk to a salesperson, right? I mean, I'll just make that that statement. I mean, want in sort of the larger sense of the word want, you know, throughout the decades of my career, you know, I've never had a buyer (laughs) probably even the ones I yeah, was very successful and, and buyers. Yeah, did business with me, but I don't think they were saying by the phone wanting me to call. And hey, we have to talk to Andy. Mm -hmm. But they do want to talk to sellers who can add value to the process they're going through. Yeah, and I think that's this is where I think it's not a blanket statement that they don't want to spend time with sellers. It's just that. And Neil Rackham, if you're familiar with Neil, wrote Spin Selling. Mm -hmm. He wrote about this back in the late '90s in his book Rethinking the Sales Force and it was, the trends were true even then, is that you know if a seller can't add value, as a channel of information can't add value to the buyer, then they'll buy from the channel that adds the least cost.
0: Yes. Or at least friction, yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a pretty low bar, I think, for <laughs> sellers yeah. these days is to say, you just need to be able to contribute something of value to the buyer above and beyond what they can learn on a website, or a review site, or any other Mm -hmm. source of information.
0: Yeah. I'm really glad that you mentioned that. It's a great reframing of the fact that no one's going to argue is that, yep, buyers aren't waiting by the phone and like, hey, I'm going to talk to this person because it's because the average experience, the experience that they have in their head of that interaction is negative. It's not that it couldn't be great. It's not that people couldn't be you know, very transparent, collaborative, sharing what the process should look like, what they've learned from dozens of others, buyers of just like them and how they've solved this problem and what else is out there in the market. It's, mm-hmm. That's not the conversations they're having. They're having people you know, pitch. Cold, pitch them, cold call them, email them with no personalization. They're having them demo something without them talking for 20 minutes they're you know doing all of these things sending these like massive long follow-up emails that like aren't to the point and helping them get the job job done right. it's but if you were to do it properly i bet you that number would be very different um, but that's just not the case now and i think again you're going to see the shift of like needing that to be the case in the near future for people to be successful in sales organizations
1: yeah so let, so let's talk about this cuz you you reframe things uh, in terms of what the job of of the seller is going forward. And and first of all I, I gotta tell you that you know, having watched a webinar and read some of your stuff is is you're old school in a very good way. Um, you know, because, because you're talking about the importance of reading, you know, Dale Carnegie. You know, and I'm like <laughs> Yeah. And I'm, and you know, to me, that book is as relevant today as it was nearly a hundred years ago when it was first first printed
0: in terms of Yeah, it's amazing. Not favorite book, but like favorite business-related book for sure. It's just like, true.
1: Right. And then, you know, know, read something online the last couple of days, you know, some thought leader saying, basically saying, you know, anything that happened before 1999 is irrelevant. And it's like, what's such bullshit, right? (laughs) I mean, it's, come on. I mean, Anyway, I love your love of Dale. I do too. I think it's still the first book I recommend sellers read. Is is that? Yeah, he's.
0: I mean, yeah, that's what I think. The I had a post the other day. It was basically like you'd be a better manager, sales rep, CEO person in general if you just took you know uh, a portion of what he talks about, right? And it's. I think right. it's very in line with this buyer first. It's about you know, like you said, adding value. To your customer, it's about listening, not just speaking. It's about just
1: being a good human. To be honest, that's the right way to approach interactions. Well, yeah, absolutely. And this idea of just being a good human is uh, actually—it's my new book coming out in February. If I can give a pitch, since it is my show, I can do that. <laughs> that's that's really what it's fundamentally about—is you know the core human skills that every seller needs. That yeah, if they have them, the world's their oysters. So. And I think that we talk about this from a mindset perspective. I'm going to get back to that again because I think you talk, and like I saw in this webinar, your brother talking, and on your website you talk about what the new job of a seller is. But I think there's a mindset that informs that that, that I want to run by you. Because I think that if sellers understood this, they would perhaps change from sort of the pitch-first mentality, the persuasion-based mentality that, that's so inherent in sales these days. And I, I think if you boil sales down, is that your job as a seller is to listen to understand what's the most important thing to a buyer and then help them get that. And I don't think sales is any more complicated than that. Even at a complex enterprise level, which is where I spent my career, um, that's fundamentally what you're doing. And I like the way you sort of frame sort of the new job as sellers as sort of a a guide to the buying journey. that's that's implicit in that, right? is is you're helping the buyer get the thing that's most important to them. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah, i I agree you'd be better than you'd be far better than you know eighty percent of the reps if you just listened and didn't pitch. But I think the best, and it was great hearing you say that back. I think the difference of that top you know one percent rep is, it's the proactive guide. It's seeing around the corner. It's knowing what the customer doesn't know yet and providing that, that you know proactive information. I think those are mm-hmm. the best people that win. They're the 250% quota reps every quarter. You're like, how are you doing this versus the team? It's not just being that guide, which the majority of people aren't just even doing that and being a good human. But it's the proactively, hey, I'm going to teach you about this. I'm the expert in this. I'm not just going to listen. I'm going to help draw out and ask you those questions that are going to reframe the way you think. It's the challenger sale type rep.
1: Um, Yeah. yeah. I mean, I might take it beyond that. But yeah, I mean, challenger is is sort of a a decent framework for saying, look, the buyer doesn't, you can't go in and assume, and this will lead into the next question, Mm -hmm. but you can't go in and assume that The buyer understands themselves completely what the nature of their challenges are and what the outcomes are they can achieve by solving those.
0: Yeah, you're not, and this is kind of maybe a good framing of that is like, you're not necessarily should just be a solution expert, you should be a problem expert. You should better understand not just how to solve this better than them. But the problems that people like them have and how they've tried to solve it before and resonate in that kind of way, I think that's like really the pinnacle of of being a great sales rep and partner to to a customer.
1: Yeah, so the question becomes is, and you talked about the top 1% and and certainly agree with that, but how can we make that top 1% the top 40% or 50%?
0: Yeah, um, that's a very good question. I think you need to start with um, uh, the next group of people, the next bucket of people, which I'd probably say is closer to like what you said, you know, there's probably really 30, 40%, you know, if we're being generous, who like want to, you know, are really working at their craft. And they're probably the folks that listen to you, the people that consume content, they're like, you know, this is their career and they're passionate about it and they're trying to get better. Um, I think it starts for them with the framework. It's not, I think people are so obsessed over the tactics, like the subject lines, the call mm. call openers, these deep. I agree 100%. And if you just, if it was just the framework, they could, people, they're smart. They're working hard, smart people, they could figure it out. I think if we talked half as much as we did about the tactics with the framework of the stuff we're talking about, how you should approach this. You would need the direction of the tactics and the specifics. You would just approach it like that and it'd be much more human. And I think that's like the core of what we need to do. And that's why, you know, excited with Accord. It's not just this product. It's really this way of selling and this way of approaching the buyer and seller and customer and seller relationships. So, um, yeah. Get more <laughs> people that- to read Dell Carnegie, I think. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That'll work. That'll work. Um, or my new book will want them to read for that Andy too. And Andy's new book. Yeah, it's the Dale Carnegie for this century. Um, yeah. I mean, well, I think that that's. This is. I wonder. For me, it seems like the problem really starts not with the individual seller, but really at the management level. Is that these behaviors that that we talk about that are the negative behaviors in sales? Uh, I don't. I don't. For the most part, I don't believe they're innate human behaviors. I think they're learned behaviors, and yeah. uh, sellers learn them on the job.
0: Yeah, it's the structure of the sales order, too, right? Like it's just it's, right. It's, it's a lot of people talk about this, it's you're structured in a way to hit this goal. It's your pay. It's the month. Like if you don't know the best practice and thinking long term, like you're not gonna. It's not. It's not. Yeah, you're not innately going to understand that um, the way that sales is positioned at a company. Um, yeah,
1: totally agree. So, how do we change that? Because I, I've, yeah, I've posed this question to a lot of people on the show: is is how do we change that? And the answer most frequently given is, well, it's you know hard hard to fix the airplane once in flight, or hard to change the tires on the car when it's rolling down the street. How do we? I mean, that's
0: fair, and I think that's probably why we found most success at earlier stage startups versus large public enterprises, right? right? I think I always go back to, and this is also like very much throwback is like crossing the chasm. How are you going to impact the majority? How are you going to impact and create that movement? I think it really starts with the innovators, the early adopters, the technologists, the people that, you know, in this analogy are the people that are thinking about this stuff that are excited and will try something new and probably do not mm-hmm. have a lot of existing things holding them back. And I think you grow from there and you create this movement and momentum into, you know, the larger group of people that are going to take this chance. Um, that's kind of what I'm seeing from being in the market in my first time, you know, really doing a startup, is, mm-hmm. you know, those are the people that just want to talk about the problem. Those are the people most passionate about it. And that's how you're going to, you right. know, start the word of mouth and get that progression. It's not going to be, you know, so I'm agreeing. I'm saying it comes from the top, but it's not necessarily the top of the largest companies and converting those, like, you know, thousands at a time to start. I think it's, the smaller companies that agree with you that are flexible enough and it's easy for them to make these changes and they're open-minded enough to make these changes. And then moving from there, that's my hypothesis of how you make these kind of big changes in the world of sales. It's not necessarily going to be changing Oracle and SAP's way of doing business right now. It's going to be the next Oracle and SAP. And then eventually you're going to get the laggards or, you know, the late majority to be like, shit, everyone else is doing this. Like now it's the common thing. And we're going to yeah. have to do it to even keep up. But yeah,
1: yeah, interesting perspective. Now, see, so you're going to lose your street cred if you keep referring to books that are you know, like 40 years old, like Crossing Chasm and <laughs> and uh, Carnegie. <laughs> that's 90 years old, but um, good books. Yeah, I mean, so one thing I wanted to talk with you about, which is you know, apropos of nothing, but because um, you guys referred to this when you and your brother and you're doing your your webinar recently. And it sort of struck me as you know we have these these and I use air quotes when I say facts or statistics that keep getting thrown out as in sales, The one is like increase the number of stakeholders as yeah. Gartner falls on their sword about that one, or uh, serious decisions with others about you know how how far, what percentage of the way are buyers through their buying process and and i I think these things are completely. Irrelevant. I'm just interested in your perspective on that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and maybe why those stats seem so great. I think it's helpful to illustrate just the change in the market. I think that there's been this massive shift. I don't think it's as linear, like the sales process isn't linear, how people buy and how people make decisions and all this stuff, especially in larger groups. But I think it illustrates in a very direct way how non simple b2b sales and buying decisions are um i think that the 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 like you know it's not necessarily they're all stakeholders but they're all there's just a number of conversations it represents the number of conversations happening when you're not involved as the selling company that impacts the decision um and, and it's it's astronomical and i think it's grown you know exponentially because the the Decisions now, just the integrations, like everything connects now or everything should, if you're buying something, it shouldn't be standalone. And it just touches on so many more teams. And I think even just the way of company building and product building and um, the way we work today is just much more collaborative, driven by, you know, Slack, like just better tooling um, and the way people are are building products and solutions today. Um it, And yeah, it makes it harder to change the status quo because you need to make everyone happy or at least not have certain blockers come up.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's, as someone whose career has transitioned across different generations of technology and so on and seen it all, is is, actually, I don't think it's quite as different as people want to believe. That's why I sort of Mm. brought it up. I mean, I think that the element of collaboration Collaboration is made easier, uh, but I think the one thing that's that people get sidetracked by is the fact that, and you alluded to, it, which I, I liked, is that everybody involved in a decision is not necessarily a stakeholder. And secondly, is all stakeholders not created equally? Yes. And and so if you're worried too much about oh my gosh I got there are 14 people now, and you miss the fact that there's one or two that are. Above everybody else in terms of just social dynamics. I mean Steve Martin, a professor at USC, had written a study about this is that yeah, you put together a group of people, there's always someone that that in a social standpoint, you know, elevates themselves, right? They're more dominant personality, they influence decisions that are made and so on. Is you still need to find who those people are. And if you don't if you aren't focused on the fact that they're not all created equal, then you could be misled by that number.
0: Yeah, which which kind of ties back to, um, to my favorite like lesson in sales that I always remembered was this idea of like the stakeholders, like all these things, all these things fall away if like you're talking to say the CEO or board member, someone that's like really driving the um, priorities for the company. But mm-hmm. the the simple like saying that I always go back to is be part of solving a small part of the largest problem that a company is working on. And that's the best way to make sure that you do not get deprioritized and they don't stop replying to you, all this kind of stuff. If you are uh, any piece, and I always thought it was solving the whole problem. Hey, this is the thing that matters. And we do all of this. It's not about that at all. You are a small piece of the biggest thing that they're working on that year or whatever the big initiative priority is. That's the best way to get a deal done. And the best way to figure out what that is, like you were saying, is to talk to the person at the top. And that person is going to dictate what the strategies are or the you know projects related to that company board level initiative. So I think yeah, like you're right. You can get lost in talking to 14 people and trying to do all this stuff, but like none of that matters if you're not plugged in and the top person isn't saying this is one of the ways we're going to move the needle, even in a small way, on this big initiative.
1: Yeah, no, I, I love that perspective, and I share that because I wrote about that in one of my books, is, is this need, especially as a smaller company, a newer company competing in a large landscape, mm-hmm. is yeah. you want to start with the smallest logical engagement that you can. And if it's being part of a bigger thing, absolutely. Yeah. And part of that, too, is that as your small part, chances are the decision on your small part isn't going to take place at the sea level it's going to take, you're going to find what I call the actual decision maker. You can sort of like a little grid I put together to show people how to actually sort of identify who that person is, mm-hmm. is is yeah, you know, you're finding out who that small thing who, what that small, excuse me, to whom is that small thing the most important thing for them? And that's, that is the person then you really focus on. Totally. And it's Especially in a small company, is, is, especially if there's upsell and uh, expansion possibilities, is it's sort of the SaaS model to some degree, but you want to sort of focus it on that way.
0: Yeah, or if it's not the main decision, if it's not you know the C-level or something like that, maybe start working on some smaller companies to start and then the person that owns that is also the decision maker. That's kind of what we've seen to be the fastest way to accelerate is, well, it depends on your solution, right? Not all solutions are built for, you know, 50 person companies, 150 person companies, but I'm saying if that's a possibility, that's going to be the fastest way for you to better understand the product you're building, your customers and how to, how to do that model. Um, Because yeah, sometimes if you start too high, you're going to be working with nobodies have no influence and you're never going to have the conversation with the executives who really understand and, and should be the ones giving you that feedback. So.
1: Yeah, but the the opposite can be true as well, though. And I think this is a, a something I see, especially with SaaS companies, as you know they start of go through this standard model. We're going to start with SMB and work our way up to mid market, and then go to enterprise. And they have a solution that even from maybe day one could scale to support enterprise. Mm-hmm. Is go sell to the big companies. I mean, that's that's why I grew companies yeah. startups Don't, if you can. As, then, as if, yeah. Is. Yeah, you, know, you want to learn how to do that. Yeah, you know you don't learn how to sell major enterprises selling to SMB. No, it's a muscle for sure that you
0: build over time, just like your product. Right. But I was more thinking like for something like a cord. It de- totally depends on the product, right? Something like a cord. Right. Are we from day one when this i this concept is new? Let alone the software is a five thousand person sales organization can use a cord to send out to all of their customers on deals. Right. No. But if it's a Internal tracking tool type thing that's working on a part of the company that isn't isn't facing. Could you sell that deal? Like more likely for sure. So it's like mm-hmm. there's all the matrices of right, like the size of the company, the decision maker, how the product even fits into that. Um, yeah, that's why that's why this stuff isn't easy. That's why it's <laughs> yeah one of the hardest pieces of the puzzle to figure out.
1: Yeah, uh, my first boss always told me so it's selling simple it's just not easy yeah <laughs> I love that yeah yeah yeah' exactly true um, so one tactic you guys talked about in your webinar which I really liked was this idea of this executive summary so tell us about that
0: yeah um, kind of like what we're talking about there's a number of stakeholders you're interfacing with and mm-hmm. this proposal or you know you as an option is being presented internally a lot more than you think um, and yeah, you better be owning that narrative. You better be framing it in a way that is consumable to the decision makers and the influential people at the top. Mm -hmm. And most people don't think about that. Most people think about the level of the people they're talking to and try to get on the calls. It's like, how do I get in touch with this person? How do I really multi-thread? I'm like, that's important, obviously, like being a voice, being a real person is people, but like, that's not the end all be all. Um, you need to arm your champion or whoever this person is when they're having this meeting to frame it in a way that's going to be most effective for your company. And that's, you know, I think the great executive summary isn't about, it's not the, we have nine head, you know, locations across whatever, whatever, like that's what I always see at the top and the logos. It is, we understand you're working on this strategic priority thing we're talking about and they're like, Oh shit, bell's ringing. I'm going to pay attention to this. They're talking about the thing that is in every meeting I'm in. You know, you're figuring out how to go global in 2022. That's what everyone's gearing up for. We're going to do an expansion to EMEA and we're like, you know, landing team, all this kind of stuff. Oh shit, this is related to that. Like, paying attention. These are the three mm-hmm. ways in which we think we can help you do that. We can help you, you know, ABC. Oh shit, we're talking about these. Right. Like, this is a great new idea for that. We need to figure that out. I didn't even know we needed to do that. And. You know here's the rough proposal we think we're you know start working on this these are the key dates milestones blah 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 like just something that like you're in their world I think is just far more important than what I see as a typical executive summary or it's just it's just so much information it's just like here's these five case studies here are these things right here's our GP say, yeah. this is whatever and it's like that's not helpful
1: it's just right here's our, yeah. here's our content dump let me let me dump all of our content okay. yeah yeah so that's no, I love my that. thoughts. It, no, I love that that approach. And I think that the alternative is as I said the content dump or yeah, I like to draw the analogy. I, I don't know, I was a kid, I don't know if you did this in your age generation is is um you know, playing this game called telephone. You know, kids in a circle Probably one whispers in the yeah, ear of the other. Yeah. That's what you're At risk of happening, right? If you're not controlling the narrative, as you talk about, they're not something there for people to see. Is yeah, somebody's going to say something about you. Somebody it's going to go on, and it's going to be completely warped and distorted potentially over time. I mean,
0: guaranteed. Honestly, probably guaranteed. If you've done enough deals, like how often is that person doing? Yeah, as good of a job as you would. Yeah,
1: yeah. Of course not, right? So yeah, I think this this tactic I think is is great. Yeah, I love the love the idea of that. It's I mean, if you can't, the other part of that is, if as a seller you can't summarize that, if you can't write that, then to a point that that uh, you also talk about in the webinar, which I really love, is is you're not at a level of understanding that you need to be. Yeah. And you know this disconnect that that I, I, another chasm I identify in sales is is between sellers go out and gather information and discovery. But don't understand the context. They don't understand why it's important. They don't, you know, cross that chasm from knowing to understanding. Mm -hmm. And so they just have these random assorted facts that they got answers to their scripted discovery questions.
0: Or how to apply it, right? I think that's kind of the key. Yeah, I guess for you understanding, kind of applying it is like you're gaining all this knowledge. How are you going to use that? How are you going to play it back for people? How are you going to get more information and be that expert and consultant for them? it's hard to get it in the first place and be a good question asker, ask and like, you know, kind of have those conversations. And then you're kind of wasting them by getting that information and not applying it in a way that's, uh, that's effective. And this kind of goes back to the whole, like, are you going to expect all of your reps or whoever's talking to your customers to figure this out? Or are you going to give them a framework or process and way of approaching this like templates? And like, that's, I think it's so funny because there's just not these basic, you know, Ways of helping people do this at new companies mm-hmm. um, that I think there's a huge gap for. Them. We we try to help with right is like just give me the outline of it. Like you know, hey, company,
1: blank
0: and blank and like all this. Right. Just make it easier to do. You're expecting everyone to be like the CEO of your own business. Versus, like, they're having hundreds of these. If they were just working on one deal at a time, I'm sure they'd have the time to think about it and do it. But, like, you're expecting people to ramp quickly and to start making this impact and and representing you in this way. You really need to give them some more guidance. And I'm not, you know, belittling people, figuring it out, just like you're asking them to do the wrong things. And your expectations are just totally off base if you think people are going to do that um, coming in.
1: Well, figuring out takes time and experience and so on. Uh, And, yeah, they have to be given the breathing room to, to actual experiment, actually experiment, which is the ideal state, but as you said, it's it's uh, not always given in, in cases for sellers. So, yeah, helping them with something like this as a template, then they get a better sense of the questions they should be asking, the types of things they really need to make sure they understand about the buyer and their challenges and where they want to go and what's their most important thing in order to, to put it down there. Totally. You know, there's a a simple test, you know, I tell managers they should have with their their sellers is, you know, the sellers basically should be able to give the answer to this question about this executive summary on every qualified opportunity in their pipeline.
0: Totally. Yeah. And that's kind of like, you know, these mutual plans, like, you know, kind of what Accord's kind of playing off of as a generation of them is like, especially for like larger deals or more complex things. Like what are your, you know, what are your chances? How are, you know, how is it not just a requirement for a deal that's going to move the needle for your business or the quarter, whatever, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. to have that shared executive summary. And it's just crazy what the, you know, where the bar is, I think for, um, for working with customers, it's just in this kind of what we talked about at the very beginning, I think you could get away with this before, because there so few options in the market. The customers kind of had to deal with this. And going back to, like, why do so few cu- customers want to talk to sellers? Because this is the experience today. And I just don't think that's going to be the case in the future. Either there's going to be more and more tech to replace them because it's just a bad experience or you're going to see this up-leveling in, in sales and customer interactions.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to take a different perspective on that, which is that you couldn't get away with it before when there were fewer options because the buyers were <laughs> they were they wanted that information right I mean it, they they were more discerning, they were tougher, I believe, and I think we sort of went through this phase where uh, given the way that you know tech in particular SaaS, has grown as as sellers sort of got away from that and became purely of a, a volume game mm-hmm. and what you're describing is a situation where yeah, now if you want to capture. The time and attention of a buyer, you have to be able to contribute something to the effort they're going through, and if you can't you're not going to get that time and part of that is part of the the key value you're providing is understanding, yeah, right? I think one of the biggest sources of value people just don't think about it, is making sure the buyer feels understood, and that can be a huge differentiator for a seller. And if you just you know, ask the extra question, if you make sure you understand, if you make sure you ask great follow-up questions, make sure you really understand what's the most important thing to the buyer, how the path forward for them. And you can reflect that, let's say, in the executive summary. That's huge. That's a significant differentiator.
0: Yeah, it's such a great feeling, too, if you've been on the other side someone plays it back and you're like, oh my god, yeah, that's like exactly, but also hearing it, kind of like this conversation, you're chatting with someone who has a similar philosophy, like you get understanding more about the problem you're working on, which is like hugely valuable for them just in of itself. Like just not even necessarily adding something, but like, Hey, so it sounds like this is the thing and these are the, st- you know, blah, blah, blah. This is the project. Oh yeah. It's really helpful to hear that back and to have to explain to someone, like there's a lot of learning involved for them and that could be valuable mm-hmm. value in of itself. And this is kind of going back to what we're talking about, you know, the listening and tail Carnegie stuff is like, it's not rocket science. You don't need to necessarily be the craziest expert in, you know, no. the industry. You need to just help, you know, help them better understand the problem, problem, and share how others have solved this thing and your technology and or whatever the thing is you're selling. So, um, but yeah, I think wow, wow. I think there's a lot of Absolutely. structural things that get in the way of. You know, even if this was the way, and everyone knew this forward, like just the the ramp times and the quotas, and like X percentage of teams missing their numbers, like you're just putting people in a position where they just
1: can't do the right thing. Um, right. Yeah. So again, that gets back to sort of this, yeah. How do we change that culture? And I'm not sure this is one that starts at the bottom up, as you talked about, because I think big companies have to change it as well. Yeah. And I th- actually think some bigger companies are more reasonable at this. I think the, a lot of the, you know, out of control, out of control, quota setting and so on really is driven by startups and others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well that's also
0: maybe you can afford to when you have existing product lines and you're like, I got here from doing that, but now we're gonna be I see that all the time. Like now we're gonna be on our pedestal because we can afford to do it because we're the market leaders or whatever. Like, what did you do to get there? I don't I don't know if you, you know, probably push pretty
1: pretty pretty hard. Yeah, what's what amazes me though about a lot of that is is that there's just some basic elements of psychology that, that people are just willing to shunt aside, right? So one of those is that when people have the opportunity to experience success, what they want more than anything else is to keep experiencing success. Mm. And so if, if you never give people a chance to taste it because the quotas are mm. too exaggerated, then you're basically taking you know, 80% of your team and saying, yeah, sorry, right? Yeah. better luck next time. And what you want to do is you want to give people the, the experience of success.
0: Yeah. yeah. So this
1: idea of, of aggressive quotas is just hugely counterproductive. Or at least to
0: start, right? If like if you if you scale it back even more extremely, so people are are like overachieving in their first three, six, nine months. Like you're saying, hey, if you can get to a third of quota in six months, you're going to become more of an expert. You're going to build pipeline. You should be able to increase your average contract value. You should be able to increase your deal cycles and stuff. And then maybe it's like you can learn from that. Whereas you're saying, if you never give them the opportunity to win, if you always put them in this position where they're like backs against the wall, they're going to be doing mm-hmm. all the wrong things, despite maybe even yeah. knowing the right things. That I really like that. I've never thought
1: about it that way. Well, good. Well, let's end on that note. A compliment. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, uh, it's been great to talk to you. Yeah, it's been fun. And so, if people want to learn more about Accord and connect with you, what's the best way to do that?
0: Yeah, best way, feel free to reach out if you're on LinkedIn, Ross Rich, check out Accord. Um, or if you wanted to follow um, what we're doing, what we're writing about, some of these topics, feel free to check out inaccord.com. That's i-n-a-c-c-o-r-d.com. Excellent.
1: Ross, thank you so much. Look forward to doing this again. Yeah, me too, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Ross Rich, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Handy Paul. Good selling, everyone.